0: Blog, talk, radio. Good morning, this is Howard Smith, and I'll be your host for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society with Ronaldo Brutico. Ronaldo, as you all know, is the President of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the Board of Directors of the Academy, as well as a Vice President and Wealth Advisor with Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering several major topics, along with our lightning round. As always, we'll include questions and comments from you, our audience. If you do have a question or if you'd like to place a question, please dial into us at area code 347-989-8946 and hit the number one key. One of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present to you, our members and listeners, with concrete, actionable ideas. Today we will be discussing Shaping the Future Tea Party Economics versus Growth Economics, and Emerging Opportunities for Growth Prosperity. After our first segment, we'll be doing an expanded lightning round, which is a series of quick economic insights and comments on major asset classes, such as bonds, the dollar, energy, and real estate. Following this, we'll have our financial literacy section of the call, during which Ronaldo and I will discuss short, middle, and long-term investment strategies. Ronaldo, one of our purposes of these monthly calls is to present to our members uh, concrete, actionable ideas that reflect the World Business Academy's desire to bring socially conscious practices on business and society. Can you expand upon this for our audience and explain exactly what this means or entails, particularly Thank in the you. context of today's program?
1: Thank you, Howard. I'd love to because um, it's not only <coughs> what's socially appropriate, and we will talk about that today, it's what makes good economics uh, you know, I, I love the concept of enlightened self-interest, the idea that you can do something that's really good for yourself, It's it, it, and at the same time, it's it's enlightened, meaning it's good for society, and it just so happens it benefits you. Let me start, because today's topic, as you know, is Tea Party economics versus growth economics, and basically what the difference is. Because if we're going to shape our future, and there was a major 43-minute address last night, as most people know, that President Obama gave. Where he laid out his vision for the future of America, as, as opposed to the vision that <clears throat> Congressman Ryan, with the um, with the so-called Pathway to Prosperity budget that the Republicans put forward by Congressman Ryan, and, and I and I'm not sure, by the way, that Congressman Ryan speaks for the Republican Party. I think it's going to be very interesting because I don't think the Republican Party is going to line up behind it. And uh, here's the reason why: you've got two different views of America, the Obama view and the Ryan view. Obama captured that in part when he said, "It's not acceptable to think that in a country like America, when our roads need to be repaired and our bridges crumble, we can't afford to pay for it. That's not who we are. That's not America. It's not America to break the compact we have had with our seniors since the Great Depression that never again will they fall into poverty just because they got older. Uh, so we're not going to give we're not going to privatize Medicare. We had that debate uh, six years ago. Eight years ago, under the Bush administration and the public and the Congress clearly decided that we should not privatize Medicare. And in fact, thank God we did because the crash of 2008 and nine would have wiped out virtually 75% of the seniors. So <clears throat> what we're talking about is what's good for America happens to also be good for the great middle class. In fact, it's good for 98% of the people. Obama's vision of America, as he's putting it forward, and by the way, I, and I don't think it's just Obama's. I think there are elements of Obama's vision, which elements of the Tea Party would actually subscribe to. Uh, I, I, I would think that that someone like Rand Paul would agree, and I think he's already said so publicly, as well as Ron Paul, his father, that we should reduce military spending. We have we today spend more money in real dollars than we did at the height of the Cold War. We spend more money today as a percentage of GDP than at any time since World War II. So America as an empire has been shouldering a financial burden. Let me put it into this context. We have roughly 5 to 6 percent of the globe's population, but we spend 50 percent of the total dollars on military. What Obama did in Libya is what this country's got to start doing. We can contribute towards a coalition, in that case of the Arab League and the UN Security Council unanimously. We can contribute but we can't
0: be dominant.
1: We have to let other countries...
0: Let me interrupt part. for a second here. Uh, and I know there are going to be critics who say, well, what if it turns out that uh, Gaddafi remains entrenched and that the effort that we made is insufficient? How will people judge the well, American well, contribution well, well, and Obama well, at that time?
1: Well, well first of all, let's, let's break that question apart. And I'm sorry to have to report the cynic in me actually knows that a stalemate in Libya is probably in America's best interest. Why is that true? Because a stalemate means that the 70% of the oil, which is in the eastern part of the country, controlled by the rebels, will continue to be extracted and exported to fund the rebellion. So that means the oil supplies from Libya, from that side of the country, eastern side, will continue to flood the world markets and hold the price of oil down globally. With regard to Tripoli, which is where Gaddafi's hold up, roughly 30% of the oil, Qaddafi had $33 billion of his assets seized overseas already, has to pump every drop of oil he can get and sell it to the global market, because if he doesn't, he has no money to pay his mercenaries. So although I don't think that it's my desire to have a stalemate, because I think lots of innocent people will be killed, meaning that whenever you have a civil war like that, innocent die as well as military, but as a practical matter, it's in the U.S.'s best interests, and it's in the global supply of oil best interests, to actually have a stalemate. So there's nothing wrong with Qaddafi being holed up in Libya, trapped. In fact, it probably is better for us, because that forces the rebels not to turn to al-Qaeda, because they need us and the other Western powers to buy their oil. Al-Qaeda can't pay for the oil shipments. One million barrels of oil have already left the port of Benghazi a week ago, the first of many shipments. That oil on the world market will bring $243 million, did bring $243 million to the rebel army and the rebel government. So they're going to keep shipping that stuff. If there was no stalemate, the rebel government might be much more influenced by al-Qaeda for political reasons. But it can't be influenced by political reasons because al-Qaeda does not buy oil. So it's actually in our interest, and I can't believe it that commentators on the news haven't picked up on this yet. Having said that, as some of you may know who are listening, today is April 14th. The Allies, not the Americans, the Allies, bombed Tripoli for the first time. So I'm not sure they're going to let Qaddafi stick around. That's their decision. I'm not really in charge of that. But from the practical point of view, getting Gaddafi out was not the goal. What was the goal? The goal was to avoid the slaughter of 750,000 people that Gaddafi said he would slaughter by taking Benghazi. He made it very clear he would go house to house and slaughter them for their rebellion. We said, that's unacceptable. That's not who America is. We don't stand by while 750,000 people get slaughtered. In fact, we went further and said, Obama said, we waited a year in Kosovo. It's the shame of the globe. The whole world waited, and they shouldn't have. While people, innocent people, were slaughtered, starved to death, and abused, and tortured. We waited way too long. In fact, we waited till the end in Rwanda. So it's, it was the right thing to do for purely humanitarian reasons. And we gave ourselves a very limited mission. We will stop the humanitarian slaughter. We'll stop the slaughter of civilians, and we'll get the Arab League, which is who should be in there, mostly Africans, and we'll get the Northern Europeans, France. Denmark, Finland, Sweden, Germany, we will get those folks in because, frankly, they have a lot more at stake than we do in this battle. And ask, it's not our job me, to be the world's cop.
0: Let me ask you another question, too. This, this struck me as time. I'm watching the news stories. The French government actually seems to be enjoying, and again, it's my perception, it seems to be enjoying their newfound role, recently newfound role, as a military power exer- exerting their... Uh, their own strength in both Libya and uh, the Ivory Coast. Any yeah. thoughts on that? Well, let me go back to
1: that. Uh, yeah, let me deal with that, but I do want to go back to the Ryan thing. I don't want to forget where we were at the Ryan budget. Mm-hmm. But, but but the the um, first of all, the Ivory Coast, as you recall, Obama was slammed two weeks ago because they said, well, if you're going to stop the Benghazi slaughter, why don't you take Gabo, Gabo uh, Gababo out of um Ivory Coast, where the president has been holed up and basically shooting at his civilians. And he said, we're working on it, and he should go, too. But he let the French take him out. And as you know, he's now been arrested. He, he surrendered three days ago. So it's not like we were letting the Ivory Coast go. It's that we were taking things in their, in their order. By the way, there's no oil in the Ivory Coast, so people can say we really did assist for purely humanitarian reasons. And the people who did that were the French. We didn't even fire a Tomahawk missile. Why are the French doing this, which is your question, I think, and why are they seeming to enjoy it? First of all, France never accepted its loss of empire. France has always thought of itself as the ultimate language of diplomats. France has always thought of itself as a power broker in Europe. And as as Europe got more complex and France got more calcified, the French kept looking for for ways to have a self-identity. Unfortunately, about 25 years ago, they picked nuclear energy way to identify themselves and they became the leader in the world of two things at that time high speed rail and nuclear they will come to rue the day that they went nuclear because it's cost their their country a bloody fortune has been nothing but a disaster and they're 70% dependent on now a technology that everybody knows is absolutely crazy but on top of that they gave up what there was their lead in high speed rail so the Germans overtook them and now the Chinese have overtaken the Germans so, that, so the French were left with really nothing that they could be proud of that they had brought to the world scene Uh, since the days uh, of post-World War II, when they were conquered. And this was their way to show their muscle, their mirage jets in Africa, in a place that they used to control before World War II. So I think there's that kind of like longing back for colonialism, frankly, in the back of the French mind. But it doesn't really matter what their motives are. The truth is they're doing a very limited engagement. They're doing it for humanitarian reasons. They're achieving an objective, and it's not costing the American taxpayers. Again, I want to go back. In the in the Ryan view of the world, the military budget would go up. Okay? So the five percent of us that is the global population that are paying fifty percent of the world's military bills, that fifty percent would go up to sixty percent, and our five percent actually is gonna go down to four percent pretty soon. So it's a disproportionate way for us to spend money. I would ask people, for example, why do we still have soldiers stationed in Germany? In Korea, frankly. Why do we have them stationed in Japan? When the American dollar has dropped very low, the cost of keeping our troops there is a a subsidy that we provide to countries all over the world, and it's crazy because we can't afford it. The reason we did it was because we were the only empire after World War II except for the Soviet Union. But as I said a moment ago, we are now spending more in real dollars than we were at the height of the Cold War. It's time for America to come home. It's time for America to stop the state of war it's been in since 1946. We've got to stop this and, and end it once and for all. And under the Ryan budget, what we, we he not only didn't mention cutting defense, he actually added money to defense, to military. So a huge disconnect with the American people, 60 to 70% want to say now, enough with all this money we're spending overseas. Bring the troops home. Reduce the size of the military. We don't need this largest standing army. It doesn't do any good anyway. And we need to start shutting down our wars, the two that we had, Afghanistan and Iraq, And we have to keep wary about getting into new wars. That's why we didn't get into one in Libya. Another issue with the the riot budget, though, what I want to go back to, which is really critical. During the Great Depression, federal income tax receipts from individuals and corporations were roughly equal, meaning the total amount of money the government collected was roughly 50% from individuals and 50% from corporations. Today, in 2000, the last year I have actual numbers, in 2009, corporations paid one-fifth of what humans, individual people did, meaning the burden of the federal tax collection has fallen by 500% greater on individuals than corporations. We have this famous example last week or 10 days ago where GE, with $14 billion in profits, didn't pay any taxes and actually got a $3.2 billion refund. Well, if you look at that same corporation, GE, they've actually produced $26 billion of profits in the last five years and didn't pay any taxes. That one corporation, if it paid at the tax rates that were in effect as recently as 1961, so just 50 years ago, they would have paid 47% of that $26 billion, or roughly $11, 12000000000 billion, from one corporation alone in just five years. So, what we have to do that the Ryan budget totally, totally ignores, and Obama correctly says, we have to share the sacrifice. So, in the Obama approach, which I fully endorse, in fact, I think Obama's too conservative, he's basically agreed to cut $4 trillion over a period of 12 years. I'd like to cut $7 trillion and do it in 10 years. And it's really easy to do because all we have to do is if we return to the tax rates of 50 years ago, 1961 which was the beginning of one of the greatest periods of prosperity in the history of America, the 60s and 70s, in 1961, households over a million dollars in income, so the upper 1-2%, actually paid 43% of their income in taxes. Today, they're paying 23%. So the rich got richer and paid literally half of the taxes they used to. So all the money that's been made in the last Ten, twelve 12 years, literally, has gone to the upper 1% or 2%. I'll give mean, you an example. Today, the top 1%, so we're talking about 3 million people out of 350 million, the top 1% pay, rather, receives 25% of all of America's income. 1% of the people get 25% of the income. In addition, that same 1% controls 40% of the assets. So what you have a disproportionate aggregation of wealth at the top. It's destroying American society. And the vision of the Ryan budget is keep that 1% or 2% rich, let them aggregate more wealth and power, and the heck with the middle class. That won't work in America. If it stays this way, America will be lost. Yeah, I'm sorry.
0: Given given that situation, that the the rich have become significantly richer, and, and we all know money translates into political power and political control, what are the prospects of even turning that around? How, how is it possible that Obama well, or any administration can actually begin to change the nature of, uh, of, of wealth in this country? The distribution you know, of wealth.
1: Well, you know, it's a huge problem. And Joseph Stiglitz, a Nobel Prize winning economist who I, generally speaking, respect quite a bit, wrote an article in Vanity Fair recently. And he said, of the 1%, for the 1%, by the 1%, meaning that we've surrendered the control of our country. To the top 1%. Because, as he correctly points out, in in a democracy, when you increase wealth, you increase power. So what's happening is a a vicious cycle. The wealthier the wealthy get, the more power they have to control and direct more wealth towards themselves. How else can you explain that in the last decade, the the, the wealthy, top 2%, have seen their income rise by 18%, and the middle income has seen its income drop, literally gone negative? So the middle class are getting left out of these, this, this this upswing that happened in wealth in the last decade. We have to change that. Why? Because we have to be able to invest in new technology. We have to be able to invest in our people. We have to make it possible so that 98% of the people can send their kids to college, which increasingly is becoming a dream. So we, we, we must innovate our way into the, next, into the next generation. But we can't even afford to clean up our potholes. That's because we've been caught in this trap where we believe that somehow, if we let the 1% or 2% of the top keep more money, that somehow, miraculously, it would trickle down to the rest of us. It was a lie. It never worked. This We said at the Academy back uh, 10 years ago, and this was all being taught as, as dogma, that they would create jobs, look what happened. We increased the wealth of the top 1% or 2%. We lowered capital gains from, from 35% to 15%. We got rid of the, the estate tax. I mean, we did all these things. And actually, jobs decreased. When we we start to restore economic equality between the 2% who are controlling everything and getting all the money and the 98% of the people who are getting stiffed, when we start to equalize that power, the wealth will also flow in a more equal way, and America will have a middle class reborn again. Does it require the rebirth of unions? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. It's an interesting phenomenon that as unions have gotten weaker, the middle class has gotten much more poor. So I think that whether we do it with unions or we do it because we recognize it's in our national interest, it's more important to me that we start to stabilize the wealth of this country, because the aristocracy we are creating reminds me of what Louis XIV did, and we all know what happened with the French Revolution. So we should not be saying, because we're the Koch brothers
0: or we're otherwise
1: wealthy individuals, let them eat cake. That didn't work for Marie Antoinette, and it won't work for the top 2% in this society
0: either. Here's another one I'll throw at you. There was a survey on the CNN website, which is not a scientific one, but it does give some interesting indications of general thought and trend out there. And in a preference poll for Republican candidates, the number two runner strongly behind Romney, who was number one, was Donald Trump, who's never held political office in his life and is probably – one of the symbols of that wealthy aristocracy. Um, what do you make of something like that as well, a reflection for, of, of of our population? Even first
1: of all, I, I've, I've said this many times as the president of the World Business Academy over the last 20 years. Uh, we, we tend to like to look at the positive and more than the negative, frankly. But I can honestly say, and I've said this many times publicly in the last two decades, I have never met a serious business person who actually respects Donald Trump. Donald Trump is not a businessman. Donald Trump is a promoter, self-promoter, actually. Donald Trump is a television star. Donald Trump is a lot of things, but he's not a business. No business that Donald Trump ever ran survived, interestingly enough. They all went bankrupt. Trump Airlines, Trump casinos, twice. I mean, and, and by the way, whenever Trump goes bankrupt, it's interesting, he skates free and his creditors and his banks get whacked. So his, his partners have been hurt real bad, and his financial resources have been hurt bad, but Donald Trump always floats to the top because he's not a business person, he's a promoter. He did promote a great deal which I studied back when it first happened of the of uh, in, in New York, which, uh the, his his very first hotel deal, uh which was a fascinating deal the uh, how and how he did that deal using tax credits from the city of New York to basically pay underwrite the whole thing and it turned it into the Grand Hyatt there in, in, in Midtown. Uh you know, that that string of deals that he did were were very, very creative. I give him lots of credit for that. He's obviously a very smart man. But he's not a businessman. I mean, he doesn't know how to operate something for profit. And the way that he's pitching himself as a birther to attract that portion of the Republican Party that otherwise would go for a Michelle Obama or a or a, uh, a Michelle Bachman or Sarah Palin or a uh, Bachman or Palin-type candidacy, he's he's trying to grab all that because the official Republican Party Uh, It was represented by Karl Rove, what, about two months ago or so, three months ago, said, we're done with Palin. And notice how she's gone from the leader of the pack to the fifth of the pack in the Republican preferences now. Right,
0: in that same poll, she was very much near the bottom. Near the bottom.
1: And, And the reason is because the official Republican Party realized that Palin was too toxic and that it was creating a split within the Republican Party. So the final answer to your question is, I think that Trump is an anomaly. Interesting statistic, by the way. Just before Trump declared his intentions that he was thinking of running, his ratings for the Celebrity Apprentice show started to drop. They have continued to drop for the last four weeks. And my belief is that when the new ratings come out a month from now, it will show an uptick, that what Trump is doing is getting attention for a TV show whose ratings were falling and getting more attention for himself so he could self-promote himself into his next deal. Is he likely to be a serious candidate? No. Will the Republican Party want him as a candidate? No. This whole birther thing is so nuts, he'll never walk away from that as a serious candidate. So what you've got really is a race that's shaping up between a Huckabee, who is tolerable to the Republican establishment, and a Romney who's preferred by the Republican establishment, but isn't acceptable to the Republican Tea Party base. So you've got a, a constant struggle going on within the Republican Party, and to the extent that they go more towards the Tea Party end of the spectrum, they will lose more and more of the great... Undecided, and to the extent that they can latch onto a candidate who will be more rational, reasonable, and responsible, they'll end up picking up some of those undecided. So the the fight for the soul of the Republican Party is really what's the issue. Donald Trump is merely taking advantage of that, and it's a, it's a minor sideshow.
0: Right? Would you think they'd ever end up with a let's say Romney-Michelle Bachman ticket, try to unite the party under under that kind of a but, banner?
1: You know, I, they I, did it I before. think. It's, I think it's an interesting speculation. I think what's more important, though, than who they pick, and this is really not about politics, this show, this is about economics and society, what's more important is the vision of America that one side or the other has. And that's why I call this Ryan budget such a disaster. I mean, people are going to unmask this thing for the travesty that it is. So I've touched on the fact that it's going to further give more tax cuts to the upper 2%. I am convinced that the other 98% of America don't want that. I'm convinced that that, that 98% of America do not want Medicare gutted. They don't want it privatized and be at the mercy of the insurance companies again. I'm confident that they don't want uh, Medicaid gutted. I'm confident that they believe that the Social Security Administration, which is a compact we have with our people, and which is not in jeopardy, by the way, this this whole thing is they don't want it touched. So I, I I want to come back to where the essence of these two visions of America... And by the way, I I have a stronger view than Obama on this. I don't even think we have a fiscal crisis. I think we have a revenue crisis. What we've done is we've chopped taxes too consistently for too long on both individuals and corporations. And if we restore reasonable tax rates to businesses and corporations, we will have surpluses as far as the eye can see. We'll be able to invest in alternative technologies. And by the way, I'm I'm assuming all of this in the absence of a carbon tax now that we are talking about raising revenue, isn't it time we talked about a carbon tax? Why don't instead of giving the money to the oil companies, why don't we have a one dollar a gallon carbon tax, or a fifty cents a gallon to start with, or ten percent of the sale price? I don't care which, how you pay it, and take that money, and 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 together with the elimination of all fossil fuel subsidies, which is around sixteen billion dollars a year, and let's put all that money into renewable energy, and watch how fast. We drop our imports of oil. And that right now is the biggest thing we have wrong with the balance of payments. It's the biggest thing that causes the dollar to fall. We mu- It's what forces us to go borrow money overseas from China. Okay, what we must well, we have do, about,
0: about four minutes left in this segment, and uh, before we move on to uh, our, our asset call, uh, I just want to remind our viewers first that if they'd like to place a question, to so please give us a call at area code 347. 989-8946 nine, eight, nine, eight, nine, and hit the number one key and we'll cue you in for the call. And again, we have about four minutes left in this segment. Do you want to pull together your last ideas on this thought about yeah, well, uh, and
1: let me just transition party versus it, right. Growth? Yeah, let me just transition it real quickly because where I was going with that comment, where we'll pick it up after the asset, the, the, the our lightning round, um, our imp- impact on global financial markets as the reserve currency, the U.S. dollar, is directly proportional to how quickly we can get uh, disconnected from our addiction to foreign oil. So when we talk in the second half about a different view of America having different implications overseas, what I want people to realize is if we clean up our act internally in the United States, it changes the entire global economy for the better. And it, and it will begin to end the fears we have of terrorism. It will begin to end the fears we have of being dragged into countless wars. It will lead to a level of prosperity the American public can barely dream of. And that vision of America is the vision I would like to push. Frankly, I didn't hear that one from Obama, and I didn't hear it from Ryan. But if i got to pick between the two, clearly Obama, with revenue raising, is on the right track. With protecting Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, the American people will overwhelmingly support that. Ryan's plan is dead on arrival, and the question is, will the Republicans run from it, or will they try to defend it uh, because of the, the Tea Party on their, on their flank? And that, to me, is the interesting question, more so than whether Romney teams up with Bachman, because I think the, the big ideas are going to drive this more than the personalities. That's it,
0: Howard. Speaking of question, we do have a question from the 818 area code. The last four digits of your number are 3478. I'm going to cue you in right now, and please go ahead, identify yourself, and ask your question. Thank you. Hello, Ronaldo and Howard. This is Brent Fisher calling. I have a financial planner that wants me to put the cash in my portfolio into annuities. However, I'm only 46 years old and feel like I should be doing some moderately risky investments so I can try and increase um, the size of my portfolio. What do you advise on this?
1: Well, Brent, first of all, thanks for calling in, and I advise avoid annuities. (laughs) Um, and I don't know your financial advisor, you didn't mention, and you don't have to, so please don't embarrass them, but if you want to talk about this privately, as you know, the, the Academy has this service where we will do that for people and more than happy to spend a half an hour, whatever it takes on your specific question, but let me answer it generically for the people who are listening. Why do I say avoid annuities? Several reasons. First of all, notice that the biggest insurance company in the world, AIG, went bankrupt. That's not supposed to happen when you buy annuities, right? That was the biggest insurance company in the world. So the one that everybody would have said was the best-rated annuity in the world was AIG. They're worthless. So, number one, it's a risk. But number two, and even more importantly, because I think that, that that risk can be predicted because of by, by watching the credit default swaps AIG was in, you could predict that AIG was going to have a hiccup. What we know for a surety, for a certainty, Brent, is we're going into a period of higher inflation. Just this morning, the number was released because of the gap price of gasoline increases – uh, we had a 0.7% increase in inflation this month. Okay, on an annualized basis, that's like a nine-plus percent annual inflation rate. Annuities don't pay that much. And by the way, I don't think I don't think you're going to see uh, the the official academy projection is that, it, that the inflation is going to pick up by the second half of this year. We're already starting to see it happen. We predicted that the inflation rate would be at least three and a quarter to 3.5%. We still think that's conservative. Next year, it's going even higher. And I don't see an end in sight to the inflation increases and the pressures that are built into the economy right now to cause that inflation to increase. What an annuity does is it forces you into a long-term relationship which can leave you subjected to the worst ravages of inflation. So what I've been recommending to people for the last two years, in real estate, get fixed interest loans. You'll be so grateful you did if you bought a house or you refinanced at the low because as inflation increases, for example, many people are sitting on 4.5% loans. By the end of 2012, that loan will cost less than the rate of inflation under current circumstances, meaning you're going to have no interest in that house.
0: Interesting, right. huh? Renal, let me add a couple of points, too. Uh, one, as an advisor, and I, again, I'm not soliciting anybody's business on these calls, um, but a couple of things you have to know, and part of your question is going to segue into our uh, financial literacy section about short, middle, long-term concepts. Um in most cases dealing with economics, follow the money. Uh a, a typical annuity earns a typical advisor a five percent upfront commission. And then oh, were you were aware of that, Brett? No. Yeah. Something right. to keep mind. Right. Keep going. Right. And and some trail throughout the history of the annuity. Um again depends on the plan, depends on the policy, and a lot of different variations. But that's a, that's a rough number the average cost of managing assets that most brokers charge these days, depending on size of accounts and so forth, it averages around 1%. So what you're seeing is a product that promises security. Again, inflation can be death to an annuity uh, and the value of annuity and earns the broker a nice upfront commission. Um, and, And when you're buying and selling equities or stocks or bonds, whatever, you have to understand why they're selling it. Um, I was just dissecting a similar situation for a client the other day um, whose broker put them into an enormous range of different mutual funds and an annuity at the same time, thereby denying the client very subtly the ability to gain discounts based on size of purchase. Um, and that's another thing that, that you need to watch out for when brokers are pushing annuities. Security is appropriate in certain situations. There are many different tools you can use to get there, uh, but it all depends also on your individual circumstance, which, again, we're not at liberty to go into on this call, uh, but it's something definitely you can look into.
1: No, but well, one of the things we can go into, because Brent raised the other... So, I'm, I'm, number one, I'm alerting you to... There's a, there's a hidden agenda when people say annuities, number one. Number two, the risk of inflation is too great at this time. An annuity cuts against you. Number three, that... Um, possibilities possibilities uh, that I think are very real, uh, and, and I don't think you have to have a risky investment, uh, Brent. I'll come back in a second, but the possibilities of someone of your age being happy with annuity for the number of years you've got left alive is absolutely unthinkable. I mean, an annuity for me is something a healthy man who's 70 considers, maybe. And even then it would be in a mix, and a very modified mix, I might add. And the reason is because the statistical number of years he's going to be collecting that annuity is small enough it's easier for him to predict over that remaining life cycle what the value of that annuity really is in, in constant dollars. So that's, that's, that's my final comment. Now let's talk about risky investments. I've, I said on uh, yeah. in, in um, this Brent, program – I'm
0: going to close down your, your line, by the way, because we're all picking up static on that. So, okay, thank you. Do that.
1: Yeah. And, thank Brent, you for and We've been saying in the Academy for two and a half years, if you read our publications, about buying Brazilian industrial development bonds. And we started recommending those when the Brazilian real was 41 to the dollar. It's today 63 to the dollar. That's a 50% increase in the face value of that bond and a 50% increase in the interest rate. When we first recommended that they were paying 12% interest in reals, which means you're now, you'd be getting eight. If you got some like I did, you'd be getting 18% interest. And I'm paid in reals converted into dollars every six months, which means that my interest is going through the roof. And my face bond, face amount of the bond is also going through the roof. Now, I don't think that we have the same kind of upside of 63 going to 80 or 90, the Brazilian real. But I'll tell you, there's a much higher probability, Brent, that the Brazilian real will go sideways or slightly up than there is that it will go down. Because none of the factors that would cause it to go down are in play. So if you bought a Brazilian industrial development bond, which today you could probably, with the discounting, still get at least a 7 8% yield. Is that about right, Howard?
0: Uh, at the moment, yes. yes.
1: Okay, so you get a 7 or 8% yield. it's it's, it's guaranteed by the the country issuing one of the strongest economies in the world, one of the most best balanced economies, Brazil, with by the way, the largest oil find in the world, still to come. So Brazil is this extremely well-run country where they're doing trickle-up economics, where they're building houses for another million people in the middle class. They're bringing more people from the poverty levels into the middle class. The country is extremely rich on resources. It's politically stable. It's taking its place on the, on the world stage as one of the leading countries in the world with one of the most stable currencies in the world and one of the best financial management systems in the world All the, and political systems. All this, and they're, and they're paying 7% or more in actual yield. If the real goes up, your yield goes up. If the real stays sideways, your, you'll, you'll, your yield will still exceed that of an annuity. And the chances of the real going down substantially, I think, are extremely low. So not only do you get the Brazilian government guaranteeing this, which, by the way, is a stronger guarantee today than the U.S. government in my mind, but you also can get the European Development Bank to co-guarantee it and still get that 7% yield. So I think there's lots of investment possibilities that are very attractive that you can engage which are not risky at all, that will outpace an annuity and, frankly, are more susceptible for a younger man like yourself in his 40s because then you can shift in and out of assets as inflation rises or falls, You can shift in and out of assets as the general economic conditions rise or fall. So I would absolutely avoid annuities if I were you and get some better advice.
0: Why don't we, Ronaldo, segue right on that point into our lightning round, which, again, is a quick economic collection, rather, quick economic insights and comments on the major asset classes, such as bonds, the dollar, energy, and real estate. Uh, And this week I'd kind of like to ask you, uh, let's start with the dollar, if we might, Ronaldo. a lot of activity with the dollar recently. Yeah,
1: look, I think the dollar, you know, we've been saying this on this show for a year, the dollar would have to go down. Uh, It has gone down. Uh, It's going to go down further, in my estimation.
0: Um,
1: The only thing that keeps the dollar as strong as it is right now is the so-called flight to safety. In other words, in a troubled world where there are two major wars flaring and a third minor one in Libya, um, and the possibility of more uh, happening with Yemen going into a civil war, and people get scared and they go okay well if 50% of the world's military is paid for by the US the last thing that will be worthless is the US dollar because that's how the military of the United States pays itself and how it takes care of its empire so there's a, a fear that that in in troubled times that you know you go to the dollar because at the end of the day that's the last thing that will be standing i think that's a that's an inappropriate fear We've been recommending Howard, and I still recommend that the euro will come back against the dollar in the next 12 months, meaning it will rise. Why? Well, it's
0: okay. up a good 20 cents in the past few months uh, from where it was last year.
1: And we've been talking about it, right? I mean, it's not mm-hmm. like people are buying it because I'm talking about it. But the stuff that we saw back then in 20—did you say 20 cents or 20 percent?
0: It's about 20 cents.
1: 20 cents, and that's on—that uh, would be about a what a almost 8 percent increase.
0: Uh, probably, like, about a 15% increase.
1: Okay, 15. Roughly. Wait a minute. a dollar? Yeah, because yeah, it's on so the dollar. The, so the idea being that the euro, which has already started to rise, and, you can, and, and the likelihood is it will continue to rise, and the scare, the fear of the euro was that there would be a cascade of debts because of Greece. And I want to separate out Greece. Greece doesn't count for any example of anything. Greece is not a normal country. Portugal is. Portugal is now the newest country getting bailed out, and needed to. Uh, and Portugal is without a government. Portugal is got a lot of challenges, although I think Portugal going to overcome them. But people's fear that that would lead to Spain and to the rest of the European community because Ireland and Greece got hit, not at all. In fact, the Irish are taking their medicine well, and Ireland will be in great shape within five to six years, I think. Um, Spain, I think, is going to avoid the worst excesses of what happened to its banks. And most importantly, what Brazil... I mean, what Portugal, Greece, and Ireland have forced the European Union to do is to re-examine the entire fundamental basis of monetary union and to start looking at the fact that they made a big mistake when they first put it in place, and that is that there is no way to boot somebody out who abuses the currency, which is clearly the Greek situation. So I see the Europeans starting to focus on this issue thoughtfully. Once they get a new system in place, which they're currently working on in overtime, particularly the Germans, once they have a new system in place, the euro will be even stronger, and you'll see even more advances. Look, they just raised their interest rates by a quarter of a point ten days ago, and that, or last week, and that quarter of a point raise indicates that they see the importance of keeping inflation lower than the U.S. government, who actually is in favor of a little bit of inflation right now. Let me do one more currency. We talked about the pound here a long time ago, six months ago. And then when Cameron put out his budget, we said, uh-oh, that budget... Is so much like the Ryan budget in America that it is going to really hurt the U.K., the United Kingdom. And sure enough, the United Kingdom has now gone into double-dip recession. Now, that's really important to recognize because the Ryan budget would do the same thing to America. I mean, it's like it's, it's a non-starter. What you want to do is you want to look at countries that are addressing their fundamental challenges in thoughtful, systematic ways. Germany's doing that, leading the European community. Problem with Greece is, as I say, it's a unique thing. If people want to ask me a question about Greece, I'd love to talk about it because I'm very familiar with the situation. But the, at the end of the day, Greece is so abnormal. Greece is a country that is wanting to live as somebody else's party favor. I mean, it's, it doesn't make any sense at all. But when you look at Portugal, you look at Spain, you look at Ireland, you can see these countries able to rebuild themselves with some outside help. But what you also see is there needs to be a new system within the European Union, the monetary union, for how they can control. The abuse by one country of a common currency. So that's really what I see coming in terms of, of other currencies. Uh, as I said to you earlier, Brazilian currency clearly going to appreciate. Uh, you've seen some appreciation in the Chinese RMB. It's going to keep happening for all the obvious reasons. In fact, the Chinese are beginning to understand why it's good for them. So there are many different places around the world you can look at currencies that will appreciate the U.S. dollar with respect to them will depreciate.
0: Okay, any other comments you want to make during our lightning round today, Ronaldo?
1: Well, let's talk about one interesting statistic that just came up, and I want to talk about why. So this quarter, the first quarter of this year, we finally saw foreclosures drop from the prior quarter. Now, that's, that, that happened for a couple of reasons that are anomalous. Number one, it happened because so many banks were illegally doing robo signing of, of foreclosures, which has been stopped. And by the way, you notice the U.S. government yesterday has instructed a whole series of banks to pay off the people who got hurt in that robo-signing crisis. Now, because robo-signing is clearly illegal and they can't go back to it, it will slow the speed of foreclosures, which is good, because that means there will be less and less foreclosed housing stock coming onto the housing market. It's a little early to predict this, Howard, but I'm getting more confident that we are close to the bottom of the home foreclosure crisis, meaning that the value of existing home stock, the home that people live in, the homes that people live in that are not in foreclosure today, could very well be approaching the bottom of what their value will be, and from that bottom, with the right macroeconomic policies that Obama's articulating, you could actually see your home value start to rise by as as soon as a year from today. And if we're not at the bottom, let me tell you where I think we are. We're within 5 to 10 percent at most of that bottom. We may even be already at the bottom or close to it. So when you're within 5 to 10% of the bottom of a market, it's time to start thinking differently about that market. Remember, there's an old saying in the stock market. Bulls make money. I people who are afraid can make money. Bears, I mean, the bulls make money. People who are aggressive can make money. Bears, who are a little afraid of the future, make money. Pigs get slaughtered. Meaning, don't try to figure out which is the last single dollar on the table, the last bottom, bottom of the bottom. When you're within 5 to 10% of the bottom of a market, it's time to rethink how you look at that market. So private housing stock in America is close to its bottom, and that's a very good thing. We should all be looking at that going forward. Does that mean that there will be a lot of new houses built? No. New house permits are way down and should stay down because we have to absorb all these foreclosed properties, and there's a whole bunch more coming down the pipeline. But once you have slowed down new construction, which we did a year and a half ago, and you stop, you start to slow down the rate of foreclosures, what happens is you start to get absorption. Now, we're having one other factor happen right now that's causing a a wrinkle, and that is so many states, particularly Arizona, are sending negative messages to the Latino community, and the overall economy was getting lower, that a lot of people who were here illegally went home. Now, those people rented properties. So a lot of the demand for housing has started to drop. That's also gone away. We're not going any lower in the economy. You're not going to see any more out-migration. I predict within the next two years there will be immigration reform of some sort hopefully a pathway to citizenship for people who've been here many years. But as those things start to happen, you're going to see upward pressure on housing stock, meaning we won't have enough units to house the American population. So right now, Howard, I just made a recommendation to a friend who asked my advice. I like the right-priced multi-unit housing development. If you can get four units or more and you can buy it at the right price on cash flow, now's a good time to buy multi-unit dwellings, residential. It's not a good time yet to start buying commercial real estate. I think commercial real estate is not within 5 to 10% of the bottom yet. I think we've got to see some more evidence of what's going to happen with the vacancy rates in major metropolitan areas. I think that we will see the bottom relatively soon, but not over, not immediately. One more comment I have to make before going on, asset classes. You have to look at automobiles. Why? Because the Japanese situation, which, as you know, the Academy is one of the best independent experts of nuclear in the world. And I can tell you for a fact What's going on in Japan? People still don't realize. We pointed out in the academy more than seven, gosh, March fifteenth. We said this is going to be worse than Chernobyl when people realize it,
0: and that was when they had just upgraded to the same level as Chernobyl. Right, and it was a two 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 at that
1: point. Now it's a seven. Now, what people don't realize is that crisis is far from over. Toyota, Honda, all the Japanese automobile makers are reliant upon parts suppliers in Japan. It's still very disrupted. I'm not worried about the electricity as much as I'm worried about the rebuilding of Japan that has to happen. And so what you're going to see is a shortage of cars from the Japanese auto sector, which means, good news, General Motors is going to do a lot better. Ford's going to do a lot better. Um, Re- Renault, mm, not so good because Renault's half Japanese. So you got Chrysler probably going to do better, although they've got the wrong lineup of cars because they're not fuel efficient enough. So there's a lot of things that will bode well for both Ford and GM over the next 24 months. Good to look at those, too. And and both have done well in the market. I think there might be some more lift, certainly to Ford and possibly to GM as well. Um, So asset classes, uh, I'm starting to see selective common stock opportunities in the marketplace. And here's what I would look for. I would look for high dividends. If you can get a dividend... On a, in, a, in, a, in a credible stock, and I'm going to say a mid-cap to a large-cap stock, if you can get a credible dividend with a good story behind it where it could take advantage of what's going to be a continuing challenge in Japan. And here's what Japan's going to do, which is going to be very good for Japan, by the way. When they finally stop that crazy reactor, which may take many months more, and they start to rebuild Japan, what's going to happen is they're going to unleash an enormous amount of money from Japanese savings accounts and an enormous amount of money... Cause people are going to rebuild, and an enormous amount of money that the Japanese have got stored up in foreign currencies, like ours, and they're going to be buying stuff like you won't believe it. So the commodity prices that we've seen go up are going to continue to go up because of the Japanese situation. The global economy is going to have some adverse impact from Japan, because it's such a big player, number three. But I think over the next two to three or four years, this Japanese thing as a rebuild is going to actually be probably very good the global economy and certainly it's going to do a lot to help keep uh, commodity prices at, at the highs they are now and rising and and same thing with food by the way so i like i continue to like food and i continue to like certain base commodities that are used in the in, in, in the reindustrialization of a country like japan or in the industrialization of a company like country like china or india any other classes of assets you, you want to talk about howard
0: No, I think given the time frame, we should move on to our little financial literacy section. Uh, Please. And this is about – I'm sorry. Please. Oh, okay. Um, And this is really to discuss, I think, one of the fundamental biggest flaws that occurs with almost all investors. And it is even a flaw in most financial plans that are undertaken by advisors and brokers for their clients – uh, which were often treated more like a security blanket by the, the people doing them. And in understanding short, middle, and long term, most people think, oh, I've got to protect my long term, for example, I'm going to do a CD. CDs never even beat the price of inflation, generally. And when I'm sitting down with somebody, the very first thing I usually ask them to think about is to think about their totality of their life and their investments as if they're creating a book or a movie about their life. And the first thing you need to look at is what do you want on that last page? On my last page, I don't literally mean the day you die, but what do you want to accomplish between now and that point in your life? What are all the things you need to do? That's your last page. And while you're thinking about that, I want to go back to page one of your story, which is today. And when you look at today, it's not just your hard numbers, your money, your stocks, your assets, and so forth. It's everything else about you, your personality, your temperament, your family circumstances, your age, your health issues, family issues, uh, and so on and so forth. And you need to understand both page one and, as I call it, page 200 before you can even think about investing. Then, just like a good book or movie has got a beginning, middle, and end, in investments we have a simple concept of short, middle, and long term. And by short, we generally mean your monthly nut, your monthly cash flow. And it doesn't matter whether it's $1,000 a month or whether it's $100,000 a month. The concepts are the same. The only difference are the zeros. And that's money you always want to make sure is not in the market. Um, Because the market, as we saw in 2008 and and ever since, doesn't really care about you as an individual. Um, It's going to do its own thing. And if you're tying up your mortgage money in the market, you're going to be in for a great shock one day uh, when you're suddenly forced to sell a so-called long-term investment to pay your bills. You never want to do that. You always want to stick in some form of money market or cash or safe cash alternative Um, Even though those rates are extremely low right now, you still want to have a certain amount, always covering your cash flow. By midterm, we're referring to an area which, depending on age and circumstance, is essentially your emergency money, your cushion money, or your income-producing money. And these are things, it's the next category up, that's there for that rainy day when there's a health crisis, your house burns down, there's an earthquake, a typhoon, a tornado, a financial disaster – it's money that you can put in a variety of categories, usually some form of of bonds or fixed-income investments, that even if they're down slightly, they're not going to be down a lot. It's something you can grab in that crisis and know you're taken care of, um, or that is also at the same time producing income for you at a greater rate than the cash or money market. That's the second category. Now, everything else, particularly your IRAs and retirement accounts, is long-term. IRAs and retirement accounts are the longest of long-term, and the last things you should ever dip into in your life, simple reason being that they grow tax-deferred. Same investment in a retirement account is going to grow faster than that account in a taxable one because there's no ongoing tax bite, which most people often forget to think about um, when they're investing. So long-term is anything that could be 3, 5, 10, 15, 20 years out. Again, depending on age and circumstance, And long-term, in general, is the only place you ever want to invest in the markets, the stock markets particularly, because of that ability to be volatile. However, in the long run, equity markets in general, and almost every 10-year period in history since 1920 will bear this out, and even our last financial crisis, we're beginning to see this come to average, will earn average between 10 and 12% a year. Inflation historically has run about 4%. Uh, fixed income runs between three to seven eight uh, percent, with five or six being a more typical number. And cash is more like two to five percent. And now we're at all time lows. So before you even think about, for example, that annuity that Brent mentioned earlier, you need to identify with all of your cash flow, all of your holdings, how each category is covered. You need to make sure short term is covered first. Then you need to look at your midterm. Have cushions there, and then, and only then, do you want to be looking at long-term investments, with perhaps the exception of a company or in a originated, four hundred one k a retirement plan, where they're actually helping you contribute and helping you reduce taxes by putting the bite there. Ronald, anything you want to add yeah, to on that, that, that basic I, I, model?
1: Yeah, on that point, I, first of all, I, I, um, one of the things I want to tell people is be very wary. What, what Howard threw out there are very, very good rough, you know, rules of thumb, if you will, generalizations. And they're generally true. That's what generalization means. However, what we like to advocate at the Academy is we like to look at the specific question of what specifically you are looking at yourself. Let me give you an example. What Brent said today, by asking us specifically about annuities, which I hope more of you will ask us questions like that, about things that will help you individually, we can then target on that and say, here's why we have a problem with annuities today and at your age group. I could make a similar comment, for example, whereas Howard's correct on the general appreciation of the stock market and the equity markets in the U.S. over a long period of time, if in fact we are about to end the U.S. empire, which I think we are one way or the other, either we'll do it successfully, in which case our equity stock markets will go up, or we'll do it unsuccessfully, in which case our equity markets will crash. When you're looking at fundamentals, when you're you're looking at the way – things change from moment to moment. You can never go to sleep because somebody sold you a proportionate allocation strategy and said, here, have this much in bonds, this much in stocks, this much in...
0: Exactly. exactly.
1: Those formulas are there just as a starting point to the thought process. And, 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 And as in everything else, what's essential is that you stay focused and you keep looking at what's real in the moment. We call that in economics, what we do here at the Academy, is called looking at the fundamentals. In other words, we're not looking at charts on walls and trying to predict when the next blip will happen based on when blips happened in the past. Instead of that, which is why I think our, our, our economic information has been historically so accurate, is we're looking at fundamentals and going, hmm, what is causing the dollar to be weaker? What does cause the, U, the, 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 the U.K. pound is going to cause it to drop? Why is it likely that the Brazilian real will rise? What is it about the fundamentals of these countries and the fundamentals of the global economic system that tells us some useful information that now I can go to my broker or my financial advisor and say, hey, here's what I'm thinking. I'm this age. I've got this much for my short term. I've got this much for my medium term, this much for my long term. Tell me what my choices are in that long-term category based on what I think the world is doing today. Oh, and by the way, the world changes very quickly, so don't put me anything I can't get out of quickly. I want to be able to, even when I get into the market, I want to know if I want to leave. I can leave without a penalty, and you can't do that with annuities, as Brent knows. So I think that would be the way I'd leave it. As we segue to the final part of the show, I want to just talk a little bit about global prosperity. And by the way, there's a great book review, Hazel Henderson, one of our fellows, a dear, dear friend of mine. Um, Hazel just did an interesting book review of a book called Exorbitant Privilege by Barry Eichengreen, Oxford University Press. And I'm pretty sure we'll have this up on our website fairly soon, so you can all read it. And if not, send an email to the Academy at info at the Academy. We'll send you a copy. But basically, the point that it makes is the one I started with at this show. This show started with the premise that we can cut the deficit. In fact, we should cut the deficit, but we've got to cut it smart. And the way you cut it smart is you share the sacrifice, so you have to start raising the taxes on the upper 2%. And remember, folks, I'm in the upper 2%. I'm saying it myself. I should be paying more taxes. Everybody in the 2% class should. Now, when we do that, what happens is we balance the revenue, because we don't really have a fiscal crisis of overspending in this country. We have, a, we have a revenue crisis. We've been cutting our revenue year after year after year, and we've been putting more and more of the revenue cuts in the hands of the top 2%. We've been putting more of the revenue cuts in the hands of large corporations that aren't paying taxes and aren't paying their fair share. I quoted you some statistics earlier in the show. So right now what we have to do, and this is the part of the point, that um, Hazel makes in a review of Barry's book it quote of course the us can cut its deficit largely caused by wall street's debacle and the consequent contraction of tax revenues due to job losses lower property tax receipts because property values crashed etc which therefore caused increasing payouts for unemployment welfare and food stamps as well as the 1 trillion dollar debt we created by extending the bush tax cuts now this combination of bad policy mixed with a continuing long-time trend since World War II of putting more and more money into the top 2%, giving more and more tax breaks to the top 2%, concentrating more power and wealth in the top 2%, these long-term trends are the death knell of the United States democracy, It's the death knell of the American empire, if you will. Now, can we transition and create a period of global prosperity if we get this debt reduction thing down right, meaning we stop borrowing because we want to have 50% of the world's military spending. What if we were only 40% of the world's military spending? Or, like it was not too long ago, a third of the global spending. So we, should, we chopped 15% of the total military budget of the world out of the U.S. budget. We'd still represent 35% of all the spending, and we're only 5% of the people. So way disproportionate. And we can do that in very smart ways. So we can raise revenue, we can leave Social Security completely intact, we can leave Medicare intact, maybe enhance it, we can leave Medicaid totally intact, we can take care of our seniors, we can take care of of children, and we can take care of the disabled, as we have always said as a nation we would do. Oh, and by the way, we get to fill our potholes, we get to rebuild the 56% of all the bridges in America that are unsafe to drive on. We do all of that, and we'll have budget surpluses as far as the eye can see. Guess what that will do to the stock market? Guess what that'll do to your personal wealth? Oh, and by the way, you'll be able to send your kids to college eventually, once again. The American dream can and should be reborn. We should not give up on it. In fact, we should realize we just lost our way, we got fooled, and we ended up giving way too much money to way too few people, who then aggregated way too much power, who then basically enslaved us. Time to change.
0: We're in all that. we have five minutes left. I want to, again, remind people if they want to call in. Our number is 347-989-8946 to hit the number one key. And with that, uh, Ronaldo, why don't we do our wrap-up for the day? We've got four minutes left.
1: I think the the wrap-up really, Howard, is tying those two pieces together, meaning a thoughtful change to a surplus budget. Remember, we had surplus during the Clinton years. Oh, and by the way, it followed after we raised taxes. Interesting indicate. So... Enough with the baloney we're being fed that somehow jobs will trickle out if we reduce the taxes further on the top 1% or 2%. We must raise the tax on the top 1% or 2%. We must start to close a number of tax loopholes that corporations use, including offshoring jobs and offshoring money. And I say that as a a director of a Fortune 1000 company. It's not in the interest of the nation, and therefore it's not in the interest of our business community for business to not be paying its fair share, and it's not. So the top 2% are not paying their fair share, and businesses are not paying their fair share. The third leg of that milking stool is fossil fuels. The thing that kills us worse than anything is the importation of foreign oil. We've got to get off of it for a whole bunch of reasons, including the fact that we cannot much longer maintain our lifeline to the Middle East. If it were to, if it were to cease... In a a dramatic fashion, we were ceasing able to get imports of Middle East oil. We would have enormous financial and economic dislocations, as it is, ladies and gentlemen. The price increase of what the average American will pay for gas in the next 12 months is almost equal to the payroll tax deduction of about $900 that they got in January, meaning we're going to pay about $780 more just to fill up the same cars and drive the same distance. So if you can do anything to reduce your driving... If you can do anything to increase your efficiency of your fuel, please do so. It not only saves you money, it's good for the national economy because importing oil, which is now at $106 a barrel in West Texas Intermediate, higher than that, of course, in international markets. We believe at the Academy that if you were to put a carbon tax on the use of fossil fuels and remove those subsidies, because Exxon doesn't need your tax breaks, folks. Exxon pays almost no taxes. There are $16-plus billion a year in tax subsidies just to the oil company majors, who are really the richest companies in the world. So they don't need that. They they get that break because you let them have it. It's time for you to speak out. It is the best of times and the worst of times. The good news is people are getting a chance to see now two opposite views of a different America, one that continues to incorporate the humane values we were founded on and one which turns the country over to an increasingly rich and powerful 2% of elites. I believe, and I hope you will think, strong and long and hard, that it's in your economic interest as a business, it's in your personal economic interest, That's it's in your interest as a human being to support the human values this country was, faced, was founded on. And by doing that, the economy will grow dramatically. Now, the final thought. As this economy starts to stabilize itself and grow dramatically because it ceases to import as much foreign oil, and because it therefore doesn't need to be embroiled in wars in the Middle East, what happens is that will be the biggest inducement to a complete revitalization of the global economy. We've written extensively about this. I urge you to go get a copy of our paper on a Global Marshall Plan. The answer to terrorism, ladies and gentlemen, is not keeping troops in Yemen or Afghanistan or all over the world trying to find the bad guys. The answer is to eliminate the root causes of poverty and, in the process, make the American public richer than it's ever dreamed. The Marshall Plan at the end of World War II accomplished that objective by basically rebuilding our enemies, Japan and Germany, and rebuilding Europe. And in the process, America got rich. Because the stuff that we do best in the United States is all civilian. We're great at roads. We're great at bridges. We're great at hospitals. We're great at building schools. We're great at infrastructure. It's time we start applying that knowledge to our own country, rebuild our infrastructure here, and in the process start the Global Marshall Plan abroad so that instead of bullets... What well, we'll be winning the war on terrorism because we will be doing bread instead of bullets. What happens is you can't get a bad guy and convince him to be a good guy because you give him a loaf of bread. But what you can do is by giving loaves of bread to the people in his town, cause him to not have a safe place to hide. So what we want to do is we want to eliminate the root causes of poverty globally. In doing so, we not are doing the right thing for our fellow human beings, but this is what I mean by enlightened self-interest. We're also going to get richer than you can imagine in the process as a society. That's the way America can lead in the post-military empire era we are entering. That's the positive outcome. Let's end on that, Howard.
0: Thank you, Ronaldo. And I just want to remind our listeners that we will be back next Thursday, May 12th, at uh, not next Thursday, but uh, May 12th at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, and hope you will tune in. This was a great call, and uh, appreciate you all tuning in to us. Thanks again. And with that, let's sign off.
1: Thanks very much.
0: Bye-bye.